Let me uh, let me pray for us real quick before Bill comes up. Heavenly Father, God, we just um, come before you this morning to worship your name. Father, as the words of that song says, blessed and hallowed be your name. And so, Father, this morning we pray that uh, that would be on our hearts. Uh, that, Father, we would humble us this morning. And, uh, Lord, I pray that you would just open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to uh, the words that you would have us here. Father, I pray that you would anoint Bill this morning and uh, bless our time together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. I count it a real privilege. Uh, my regular schedule, hey Jim, my regular schedule and my commitment to my wife to help her schedule and commitment to my sons to take them to school on Wednesday mornings um, keeps me from coming here. But your devotion to Christ, your service to Him and to this church uh, is well known uh, by not only the whole church but by me. So thank you for the privilege of being here. Uh, I'm going to enjoy my time with you and I hope you enjoy your time as the Spirit of God teaches you the Word of God because that's what we're here for. Let me start this way. It was 18 years ago uh, this coming summer. It's the summer of 1991, and it was the first year of my eligibility and my cubicle mate's eligibility to become a senior engineer at the rocket factory. Uh, if you've never heard before, in my previous life, I was a rocket scientist. Yes, actually, you don't always need us around, but every once in a while it's nice to have one on standby. It was my first year of eligibility to become a senior engineer, and so my friend and I, five years earlier, had started at a company named Aerojet. We were designing and building and testing rocket engines. It was a lot of fun. What boy doesn't want to make smoke and fire and noise? It's really, really fun stuff. Well, we had started at roughly the same time, and even though we worked on different projects, we shared a cubicle together. He was from California, I was from Kansas, and God brought us together, and it was my privilege to introduce him to Jesus Christ, whom he trusted in those first five years, and began walking with Christ. At the five-year point, we were both up for promotion to senior engineer, which at Aerojet was a big deal. That meant we got more responsibility, we could do more things independently, we just had more mm, control. It's my spiritual gift, by the way, is control. I can't make it come out on any test, but ask the staff. <laughs> it's my spiritual gift. So when it came time for our review that summer, we had both begun congratulating each other ahead of time because we had frankly done a pretty good job. We fully expected that we would both become senior engineers on that day, which was a big milestone for us. That night when we went home after our reviews, he went home a senior engineer. I went home crushed. I had been passed over. I went home, and I can remember the big details like it was yesterday. I had desired to become a senior engineer. I had worked hard to become a senior engineer. I had done everything that other guy had done to become a senior engineer. But his dad worked there. And my dad, of course, didn't. 
So I went home, not only with the desire, but I was crushed because I felt like I deserved this promotion. There was financial gain, there was the respect of your peers and all those kinds of things that you can imagine. But I am crushed. I went home and you would expect, because of the spiritual stature that I have now, (laughs) that the first thing I would have done is fall on the floor, fall on my knees and pray to God. But that's not what I did. Instead, I nursed the wrong that had been done to me. I rehearsed it over and over to my wife, the injustice that was done to me. And the next morning, I woke up and I went into my boss's office and I basically, because somewhere in the middle of the night, my spirit had stamped its foot like a toddler and decided that I was going to have that promotion. So I did what any good Christian, I'd become a Christian in 1986, this is five years later, I did what any good Christian would do at that time in his life, trying to influence a witness to his co-workers. I walked into my boss's office and I took matters into my own hands. I basically demanded to my boss that he reconsider, change his mind, and that I knew there were people who would advocate for me and that did I want him to call them or would I call them to get this overturned, to get this changed. He was a very gracious man. He didn't fire me on the spot. (laughs) He actually went and talked to the individual that I had pointed out to him and they did. They reversed, they changed, they made a new decision, they promoted me to senior engineer but it didn't feel like I thought it would feel. It felt hollow. It felt empty. And I learned a lesson looking back. Uh, Humbly, God's spiritual influence through me was more powerful in the first five years than in the last two years after I had done that. Because I discovered that when you walk in step with the world, your witness toward non-Christians begins to fade. Your salt becomes less salty, your light becomes more dim, and they look at you and say, you're not really any different from us after all. That was a hard lesson for me to learn. In the years since then, I've gotten to study the scriptures and go to seminary and what great privileges those have been. One of my loves is the Old Testament. I've studied it quite a bit. I've taught a class on it from time to time. And one of my heroes in the Old Testament is Abraham. So for the next two weeks, we're going to look at one little vignette from Abraham's life where Abraham, the man of faith, the friend of God, took matters into his own hands. And in looking at this one vignette, we're going to get some insight into what a faithful man, that Abraham was a faithful man, what does it look like when a faithful man works out of his flaw? And Abraham's flaw is self-reliance. What does that look like? I want us to begin by connecting with Abraham. So what I'd like you to do in just the next five or six or seven minutes is at your tables... Look at Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis 11:27 through 12:20. We're going to look at this passage for two weeks. This week we're going to look at it through one lens, and next week we're going to look at it through another. 
But I want you at your tables to just look very quickly, skim over Genesis 11:27 through Genesis 12:20. I want you to get a flavor for Abraham, for his faithfulness. Then we're going to spend some time looking at his flaw, his flaw of self-reliance. He's a man that I connect with very well. And the scriptures are written to instruct us in what it looks like to God when a faithful man begins to operate out of his flaw. And what does God think of that? How does God respond to that? So at your tables, just for the next few minutes, look at Genesis 11:27 through 12:20. Just skim it very quickly so you get the idea of the story. There's a few other verses there to look up. And talk with your table about some things you notice about Abraham's life of faith and walk with God. We could discuss this all morning and that would be profitable, but since I'm going to talk, then you have to listen to me. What do you see about Abraham? What do you see about his early life? Tell me something you observed about Abraham. He was what? He, he was faithful and then fearful. Great. Tell me some other things. What do you notice about Abraham? He's what? He was a... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, scoundrel. That's, that's a good word. What else do you notice? Tell me about the uh, Acts 7. What did you see about Abraham and his spiritual background? Acts 7, verses 2 through 4. Stephen is talking to the Sanhedrin. What does he say? Yeah, he was obedient to God. What, what happened? What happened? Joshua 24.2, where is Abraham and his father when God comes to him? He's in Ur of the Chaldees. He is in the pinnacle pagan city of the world. Abraham did nothing to merit or earn God showing up to him. But God showed up to him nonetheless. Amen? That's my story. I don't know about yours. I wasn't even looking for God when he showed up. My life was fine, thank you very much. But in 1986, God showed up to me, not in a vision or anything, but he made himself known to me and he wooed me to himself. And I trusted him in 1986. God shows up to Abraham for no good reason on Abraham's part, but very good reasons on God's part. He appears to him. Stephen tells us that in Acts chapter 7. God appears to the pagan Abraham and his whole family. What was Joshua 24 to? What kind of family did Abraham come from? Did you get to, did you get to Joshua 24 too? Huh? They were pagans. Terah's family, they were idol worshipers. They had idols set up all over the house. Whatever that means in that day, they were idol worshipers. God shows up to Abraham, whose family is steeped in being a heathen, being a pagan, being a non-follower of God. Abraham, I don't want you to miss this connection, Abraham is a first-generation follower of God. Are some of you first-generation followers of God? 
then you're connected to Abraham because he is a first-generation follower of God. And so some of the things he does, he didn't have the benefit some of the rest of you men have had of a godly family and a godly upbringing. Abraham didn't have that. So we got to keep that in mind. Abraham is a faithful man, but he's also a first-generation follower of God. He left his heathen background and started over. He left behind his comfort and security, which he would have had in Ur, for the promise of greater service and usefulness to God. When God shows up to him, he says, leave everything behind and come follow me. Did he do that with you? He sure did that with me. Leave everything behind and come follow me. Abraham is doing that. He's left everything. He's traveled from your direction. He's traveled from Ur to Haran, which is several thousand miles. And then he's traveled eventually over to Canaan, which is another several thousand miles. This man has left everything behind for the promise of greater service and usefulness to God. This is a faithful man. This is a man like many of you. And a man like I'd like to be. He took God at his word and began to walk with him in a strange and new territory called the promised land. Remember God told him in chapter 12, Leave your country, your relatives, your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. I will cause you to become the father of a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and I will make you a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All families of the earth will be blessed through you. God gave him promises, just like God has given us promises. God gave Abraham his word. God has given us his word. There are great connections here for us with Abraham, I think. When you skim through chapter 12, you saw that God had provided faithfully for his whole family as he traveled south through the promised land and wound up at the Negev, which is at the southern end of Israel. I think it's pretty interesting when you get over to chapter 12, Verses starting verse 6 says, Traveling through Canaan, they came to a place near Shechem and set up camp beside the oak at Morah. At that time, the area was inhabited by Canaanites. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I'm going to give this land to your offspring. So he reiterates his promise, he reiterates his word to him. And Abraham, I'm calling him Abraham, I know his name isn't changed yet, but it's just easier. Abraham built an altar there to commemorate the Lord's visit. After that, Abraham traveled southward, sets up camp in the hill country between Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar and worshiped the Lord. Then Abraham traveled south by stages toward the Negev. What is Abraham doing? He's setting up an altar in the middle of pagan territory. And he is very publicly declaring his allegiance to the Lord in the midst of all of these pagans around him. He has no fear. He has faith and love for the Lord, and he's expressing it publicly for everyone to see. The Canaanites are in the land, but Abraham is unafraid or unashamed to show that God is a big part of his life. I also think it's interesting that the scriptures tell us he set up his camp, he set up his tent between Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Bethel means house of God, so on one side... Abraham's camped in between Bethel, house of God, and on the other side, we could paraphrase it by ruin, Ai. Abraham is camped between the house of God and ruin. Because the believer, the follower of God, always stands between two choices, to either move toward God or to move toward ruin. 
The scripture is telling us here big picture things in a very compressed space. The house of God on one side, ruin on the other. You and I live in between choices, choices to draw closer to God or choices to draw closer to ruin, closer toward the world. What Abraham didn't realize was that God had enrolled him in the school of faith. He's enrolled you and me in that same school, if you hadn't noticed. Abraham has a semester exam. The semester exam is a famine. And the scripture wants to, in a very compressed way, not tell us the details, the chronological historical details, but it's compressed the story into just a few verses so that we could understand the choice that Abraham made and the consequences it had on his walk. So it's not meant to give us just a historical picture, although it does do that. It's meant to teach us a lesson. This little vignette we're looking at is meant to teach us a lesson on self-reliance. Here's Abraham between the house of God and ruin. And what happens to Abraham? Which way does he choose when the test hits him? He doesn't necessarily move toward Ai, but conceptually he moves toward ruin. And he moves to Egypt. So as you look at this really, really short little vignette of Abraham's life on self-reliance, I noticed three things about self-reliance that we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning. Just, uh, I, I think they're in your handouts. The first one is this. Abraham's, uh, Abraham's self-reliance exchanged faith for fear. Abraham had been a faithful follower of God, a courageous follower of God, one who was unafraid and unashamed, even in the midst of the Canaanites, to say, God is the center of my life and set up an altar to worship God, to be reminded that God is the center of his life and the source of his blessing. He moved around in a tent because, remember, in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that you and I are sojourners. We're wanderers through the world. And so Abraham is the prototype, the first in a long series that includes you and me of people who follow God by faith. The tent and the altar are important to understanding Abraham and his walk with God. He had a tent because he had a dependent faith on God. He had an altar because God was the center of his life and the source of his blessing. And he lived that way among the pagans, among the heathen, among the non-believers. But a famine comes. The famine didn't cause Abraham's decision. The famine was the test. It was the fire under the crucible to show, to reveal the quality and the purity of the metal inside the crucible. So the famine comes along first. It was the external circumstance that prompted Abraham's decision. The external circumstance, a famine. Let's think about a famine for just a second. This famine was unexpected. It was unwelcome. It could have led to financial ruin for a shepherd. I mean, if you're a, if you're a shepherd and your wealth is measured in flocks and it's so dry that your herds can't drink, you lose everything. You could be financially ruined in a famine. If a famine goes on long enough, though, what else could happen? Abraham and his whole household could die. This is a serious circumstance, a serious situation that Abraham, the man of faith, 
who has followed God faithfully, who's left everything behind for a greater promise that God's going to give him. This same man who's faithful has a flaw. The flaw is in his heart. His heart is flawed. It has a big crack in it. And the big crack is the crack of self-reliance. So faithful Abraham, in the test, in the famine, for good and right reasons, his heart is revealed not only to himself but to us, to teach us, to remind us, so that we can, we can benefit from the tuition someone else has had to pay in the school of faith rather than having to learn all of those lessons ourselves. Although I've paid much tuition in this class, <laughs> in my school of faith life. As the famine grew, Abraham's options seemed to shrink. He grew fearful. He grew anxious. He grew increasingly impatient, as you and I would too. There's less and less food to eat. There's a huge household to feed, as well as flocks that have nothing to eat. And something inside him says, do something. Do something, Abraham. There's a famine here. Get out of town. You've got to do something. Is there a famine in your life? Is there a circumstance right now that feels like if you don't do something about it, it will lead to ruin or death? Maybe not physical death, emotional death, financial death or ruin? The death of a dream? Something to do with one of your students or one of your young adults. If you don't do something about this, there could be ruin. There could be death. And something inside you begins to well up like something welled up inside me and that, and you say, I've got to do something. My friends, that reveals Abraham's flawed heart because what prompted his decision was a famine, but what caused his decision was the flawed heart. Fear took over in his heart. These are not in your notes. They're just some other thoughts that I had. You can read those things that I wrote there in your notes. But when my heart becomes fearful... When I get in the midst of a famine, and it may not be that severe of a famine, it may be less of a famine, but it's a place where I begin to feel something inside of me welling up that says, do something. If you don't do something, it's going to result in ruin or death. When that begins to happen to me, I know my eyes are focused more on my circumstances than on my God. I know that my mind moves off of what God has said and what God has done and my perspective gets really warped. My mind shifts to what I might lose or what I need to have when fear begins to take over in my heart. And I know that my heart that once longed to follow God becomes a heart that now longs to play God. I don't want to follow anymore. I want to be God. And I'm going to make the decisions that will work out best for me in my life. Unfortunately, as the famine worsened for Abraham, it didn't reveal a hunger to draw closer to God, but instead revealed a desire to take matters into his own hands. 
Are you standing in a famine right now? Do you see a famine on the horizon? Do you believe Matthew 6.33? Remember what Matthew 6.33 says? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, food, clothing, shelter, etc., will be added unto you. Do you believe that in the midst of your famine? Do you believe Hebrews 13.5? Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you to fend for yourself. Do you believe that in the midst of your famine? Or have your circumstances become so huge that your eyes are no longer on God, they're just on your circumstances? You've forgotten His Word. You've forgotten His past faithfulness and provision in your life. Are you in a famine right now? Is that test revealing something about your heart? It revealed something about Abraham's heart. Let me say one other thing, because some of you are undoubtedly, you've noticed this as you went through this passage, even though you went through very briefly. God called Abraham from Ur, he went through Haran, and he came to the promised land, right? God said, go to this place. What happens in the place God called him? A famine. My friends, just because life is hard doesn't mean you're out of God's will. God allowed the famine to come to the place that he called Abraham. That was the test. That was his semester exam. In the place that God calls you, guess what? You're going to have a semester exam. You're going to encounter a famine. If you haven't in your life, you will. If you've encountered one, you'll encounter another. Abraham encounters at least three in the whole story of his life. And I'm sure there were, much, there were many more little ones that came along. A famine. Right where God has asked you to be. It's unexpected. It's unwelcome. It could lead to ruin. It could lead to death. But God has put you there. I think that's interesting. Just because life is hard doesn't mean you're out of God's will. Will you remember Mary for just a second? We're coming up on Easter. We're celebrating the crucifixion of the Lord and his resurrection. Can you imagine being Mary? You might be 16. You're unwed and you're pregnant. Joseph went to biology class. He understood how babies are born. Hey, Mary, how'd that happen? Well, let me tell you, the angel of the Lord showed up. Oh, is that what you call him? <laughs> the angel of the Lord showed up, Joseph. Really, really? And, and God's going to bring forth his son. From Can you imagine the suffering, the hardship, and the ridicule that Mary must have endured in bearing our Lord Jesus? Being in the center of God's will doesn't mean life's going to be easy. The Apostle Paul, remember in 2 Corinthians, he lists out, remember he says, I must be talking like a crazy man because he starts listing all of the things, the hardships he's endured for the sake of the gospel and growing the church. Being in the center of God's will doesn't mean life's going to be easy. It doesn't mean you avoid the semester exams. Everyone goes through semester exams in the school of faith. How about the Lord Jesus? Do you recall that it was the Spirit of God who took him to the wilderness? 
You remember that? The Spirit of God took Jesus into the wilderness, into a place of testing. The Lord Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. We just looked at that in iChat a few weeks ago. Gethsemane, that place where he has to wrestle with God, where he's looking for any way of escape. But then in the end, he lays it at the Lord's feet. And he leaves it in his hands and he says, not my will, but yours. Being in the center of God's will doesn't mean life is going to be easy. We don't have to be fearful, but we should expect testing because that's how the Lord grows us and changes us and transforms us from the inside out because he's not just looking at our, at our behavior, at our external behavior. He's looking at our heart. And to change our heart, there has to be a flame on the crucible to heat it up and really bring out what's going on in there. So God does that with Abraham. Abraham is right now, even though he's in the famine, he's in the middle of God's will right now. This principle has been, it's been stated by somebody very, very well. You might want to write this down. The will of God, the will of God will never take you to a place, the will of God will never take you to a place where the grace of God cannot sustain you. I wish I'd said that. I didn't. Somebody else has said that. The will of God will never take you to a place where the grace of God cannot sustain you. If you're in the midst of a famine or see one looming on the horizon and you're not in any known sin, if you're in known sin, then you need to stop it and you need to repent and you need to go the other way. And you may be in a famine of your own creation because you're walking in sin. If you're not in any known sin and you come on a famine, a test, that seems like it's going to bring ruin or disaster or death to you, then you're in the school of faith, you've been given the semester exam, and now God's waiting to see, will you trust me, will you move toward the house of God, or will you move closer to ruin? And he leaves the choice with us. But he says, learn from Abraham. If you're in the midst of a famine right now and you're not in any known sin, stay put. Stay put. This is where God has placed you. It's testing time. And on the other side, as your faith is tested, it comes forth as pure gold, which is more precious to God than anything except the blood of his son. Your faith to stay put, to anchor yourself, even in the midst of that famine, and trust God in spite of your circumstances, results in praise and glory to him and is his best for you. Stay put if you're in a famine right now. Self-reliance exchanges faith for fear and that causes it to run to Egypt. Second observation, self-reliance runs to Egypt for help. Chapter 12, verse 10. At that time, there was a severe famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to wait it out. Abraham didn't stay put. He chose instead to run to Egypt, to turn to Egypt for help. 
he forgot one thing, but in Genesis chapter 12, nobody knows these things yet, like you and I do. God's servants never run to Egypt for help. Unless they have his permission. As a rule, God's servants don't run to Egypt for help. What didn't Abraham do? The scriptures are silent. They've told us about Abraham and his walk with God, his tent, his altar, how God is the center of his life and he worships at the altar. You're the source of my blessing, Lord. Everything I have comes from you. The famine hits him. He becomes fearful. Something inside of him is saying, do something. And he finally comes to the point where he has to run to Egypt for help. What didn't he do? He didn't seek God's counsel in prayer. There is no indication that Abraham paused and prayed. The scripture has been very clear about his walk with God up to this point. Abraham doesn't even stop to pray and ask God what he should do. Abraham didn't trust God's word to him. God put him there. He said, I'm going to bring you here. Everything's going to go well for you. Just hang tight. Stay in the promised land. All throughout the Old Testament, the promised land is a, it's a boundaried place. It's a fenced-in place, so to speak, where God's best happens to God's people. That's what the promised land is about. God's best happens to God's people in the promised land. God took Abraham to the promised land. And he said, my best will happen to you here. Stay put. And he didn't remember God's past faithfulness and provision. He didn't pray. He didn't consult or remember God's word to him. And he didn't recall God's past with him. The faithfulnesses that God had done in his life over and over and over. He forgot or ignored or put behind him all of those things, and he ran to Egypt. Now, Egypt in the scriptures, I have to give you a little sort of a, an explanation of Egypt. Egypt in the scriptures, many times, spiritually speaking, many times alludes to or is an application of, okay, don't misunderstand me. The promised land is real. It's a physical place. The Hebrews went there and all those things. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But the promised land and Egypt give us a spiritual application that comes all the way over to 2009. Here are some of those applications. In Egypt, spiritually speaking, Egypt is a place that is not God's best for the godly. It's not God's best. It's a place of bondage, not a place of freedom. Remember, that's why we had to have the exodus. They're in bondage under Pharaoh. There's another king who's ruling over them. Does that sound New Testament to you? The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the way of the world, Satan. Pharaoh is many times, there's a parallel between Pharaoh and Satan. Egypt is a place of bondage. It's not a place of freedom. It's a place where the godly leave God behind at the border. Remember in the wilderness, what do they want to do? They want to find a new leader and they want to go back to Egypt. They want to leave God in the promised land and they want to walk back into Egypt. That's all throughout the first part of the Old Testament. It's a place of doubt and mistrust of God and his word. 
That's why in the wilderness they want to leave and go back to Egypt. They doubt God, they doubt His Word, they don't trust Him, they don't trust His Word, so they're going back to Egypt. It's a place that seems to bring rest and relief, but inevitably comes with a hidden, giant balloon payment, which is exactly what happened here. Abraham should have stayed put. Self-reliance exchanges faith for fear. Self-reliance runs to Egypt for help, which is where God's servants don't run. And finally, self-reliance incurs unanticipated consequences. As you skimmed chapter 12, and we're going to look at this more next week, Abraham's choice brought trouble rather than blessing to his marriage. Because of his bulging bank account, he went and got even more wealthy. That turned out to be trouble for him by the time we get to chapter 13. And it brought trouble to his nephew Lot. In fact, it almost shipwrecked Lot. Perhaps worst of all, Abraham's choice cost him his witness for God before the heathen. Who calls Abraham out? Who calls Abraham down? Pharaoh. A pagan person turns out to have more integrity than God's person. And a pagan person comes up to God's person and says, get out. You don't even have the integrity I have. No one would do such a thing. Get out. Can you imagine being called out and called down by such a person? Has that ever happened to you? When you walk in step with the world, your witness deteriorates. Self-reliance is going to lead you to be motivated by fear. Self-reliance is going to cause you to run to Egypt for help. Self-reliance is going to bring trouble on you later that you cannot even right now anticipate. And the worst of which is that when you walk in step with Egypt, when you walk in step with the world, you're going to lose your witness, your distinctness, your saltiness, your light, just like I experienced in a small way in the summer of 1991. When I walked in step with the world, my witness and my spiritual influence went down. Abraham's went down. My experience testifies to the truth of Scripture, and I'll bet yours does too. What I'd like you to do in the remaining few minutes that we have is at your tables, if you feel comfortable enough, and I think you do, would you share with your table if you're in a famine? What is your famine right now? What are you looking at that you say, this circumstance is becoming overwhelming. This situation, this test in my life right now, it's really hot under the crucible. I'm feeling the temperature come up, and I'm feeling everything inside of me say, do something. Where's your famine? Would you share that with your table? Second, I want you to share 
after you share where your famine is or where your famine could be. If you say, praise God, I'm not in a famine right now. Your neighbor may be saying, praise God, I'm in a famine right now. That would be the right response. But you're saying, I'm not in a famine right now. Where might your famine come from? What might be God's semester exam for you? And then I want you to talk with each other about what would it look like to stay put? What would it look like to not run to Egypt for help in your famine? What would it look like in your particular context and situation to stay where God has placed you? His goodness hasn't changed and his goodness toward you hasn't changed. He desires good for you in your life, but that good doesn't always look like we want it to look but he knows what's best. What's your famine or where might your famine be? And what would it look like in your particular situation if you stayed put? At 745, then table shepherds, if you would pray generally for your table, for those men who are experiencing famine or who can see one on the horizon, just pray and close us up and you'll be gone and out of here at 745. Thanks for the opportunity to share about Abraham. I love him. I find tons of connection to him. My prayer has been that you will too and that God will speak to you about your situations and staying put and watching God work as you rest in him in faith. Amen? Amen.